Well, good morning. Glad you're here on this snowy morning that you braved it and came out. I'm really grateful to be here. I've known Ruby for about five years and actually knew the Walkers prior to knowing the Jacksons. And so I feel, feel like I'm attached to you all in lots of ways. And I'm very honored to be here and share some things I've been learning about suffering if, it, if it's not so good, it's always good to have someone to throw under the bus. And so I did meet with Ruby, and she did tell me this is what she wanted me to talk on. So <laughs> doesn't go well. <laughs> uh, talk to Ruby about it. <clears throat> uh, for our beginning session, uh, I'd love to just encourage those of you uh, with a Bible to, that we're going to be all over Matthew, but primarily on page 8. 32, Matthew 26 is our main text for the day, uh, but we'll be, we'll be nearer about or around all in Matthew this morning. <clears throat> My dad used to be in real estate. Uh, I learned from him that what is truly important in real estate can be summed up in one word, location, or the way they like to say it, location, location, location. Well, in biblical interpretation, there's one word that sums that up as well, and it's context. Context, context, context. This morning, we'll be interpreting and applying Matthew's passage on the institution of the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, really 26 through 29. We'll be looking at 26 and 28 this morning through 28. So gathering information about the context of that passage is very important to us. One way to do this is by taking the broad look at the Gospel of Matthew. Looking at how he develops themes, we can look at the beginning, chapter 1, and at the end, chapter 28, go back and forth and see three broad themes that he weaves throughout the entire book. Then we can take another look at the context immediately around those verses in chapter 26 itself and see that Matthew is setting up kind of a parallel mountain climb to get to the point of our text today. And these two steps together, the broad look and the close-up look of chapter 26, will help us to understand the passage better Help us to look to Christ, I hope, with renewed faith to believe in him and grow more like him. So let's start with that broad look idea. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 if you want. Put your finger in 28. There are three alls, A-L-L-S's. It's major themes that run through all of Matthew's gospel story that explain basically who Jesus is and who his people are. The three alls are, one, all authority, two, all nations, and three, all allegiance. All authority is highlighted in chapter one's genealogy. It says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So kingship carries, surely, the idea of authority with it. Here, Matthew reminds us that Jesus 
is heir to the throne of Israel, a son of David. Then in chapter 28, the final chapter of Matthew's story, Jesus plainly tells us in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So when Jesus celebrates the final Passover meal and he initiates the first new covenant meal with the family of God, remembering his suffering and death, he has every authority to do that. Here in the United States, we don't have much experience with royalty or monarchy. Now, somebody said they visited England a lot. And maybe they have a little more authority. The closest we get is probably watching The Crown on Netflix. However, we do have our own type of royalty here in the United States in the arena of athletics, right? Uh, there's a lot of worship going on there and bowing down. I'm not athletic, but my husband Steve is, and he taught me uh, the new meaning for the word goat. Not the Billy or Nanny goat variety, but the greatest of all time variety. So Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all time in every way. Everyone in the room with him that night at the institution of the Lord's Supper knew to call him Lord, except Judas, who called him Rabbi. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all authority. My only personal experience with athletic authority was with Lefty Drizel, who was once the basketball coach at the University of Maryland, where I attended, graduated, and I eventually met him at a place called Saranac Village in Upper State New York at a Young Life camp where his daughter was on work crew and I was the work crew boss. He was very kind when he came up. I met him just briefly. I didn't see him again until one day I was half-heartedly running around the top of Coldfield House when someone stepped out of his office, spied my very poor excuse for exercise, and boomed, pick it up. That authority for someone who had never had a coach before drove me to my top speed. It was Lefty Giselle. So our next theme of all nations is emphasizing that the people of God are those called by God. In the genealogy, we see Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is also the son of Abraham. God called out Abraham to himself from a place called Ur. He was a Chaldean who had been a moon worshiper. He then includes women from different nations in the Savior's lineage. Rahab, a Canaanite harlot. And he makes it clear that the people of God can come from outside of Israel and from questionable moral backgrounds. Once again, Ruth. She was a Moabitess, the great-grandmother of King David. In the final chapter, then, of Matthew's story, we see this idea of all nations when he plainly tells us in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So when Jesus removes what has been exclusively celebrated by Israelite families, units, the Passover, to initiate a celebration with his disciples, 
and tells us in chapter 12, verse 50, that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's making it clear that the people of God are not only those from Judah, but they will be from every nation on the earth. The third all is the all allegiance theme. It requires us to read a little bit further in the beginning of Matthew, going to chapter 2, verse 11, where we'll see a group of non-Jewish men from the east coming to give allegiance as they fall down to worship the king of kings. Flipping back to chapter 28, in verse 20, Jesus tells us to teach, what to teach his disciples, that they are to observe all that I have commanded you. So when Jesus seems to ignore the Passover emphasis on the lamb, focuses on bread and wine instead, and commands us, take, eat, this is my body, or drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We are to obey him from the heart. These themes of all authority, all nations, and all allegiance are woven throughout the Gospel of Matthew, including our text, Instituting the Lord's Supper. Our faith is strengthened as we feed on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The King Almighty is calling us from every nation to give our whole selves to love him as he has suffered and died for us. In addition to these three themes, as we look at scripture surrounding our immediate text back in Matthew 26, again, that's page 832, you're trying to get back there, we're reminded by Matthew of one burden Jesus experienced as his death approached and one aspect of accomplishment Jesus won for us in his death. So let's first look at this one burden. We sang about it, and we use the Psalter, Psalm 22, and you'll get to think about it a little bit more shortly. So it's evident that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus endures forsakenness and betrayal, even more so than than the other synoptics or John. He's very alone as he approaches his death. Just prior to the institution of the supper, Jesus foretells the betrayal of Judas in verses 20 to 25, right before our text. Just after our text, in verses 31 to 35, Jesus foretells the denial of Peter and all his disciples. The Lord's institution of the supper is bookended by betrayals. Going back a little further, verses 6 through 12, Jesus is anointed with oil as he dines. The entire group of disciples witness this and are indignant at the waste. All disagree with it, and Jesus rebukes them and explains that she, most likely Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sister, has done this in preparation for his burial, and she will always be remembered for it. 
Notice those men, they still didn't get that Jesus was going. They, they told him, don't go, don't go, when he talks about going to his death. But Mary somehow, probably because she sat at his feet and really listened to him, somehow she knew, and she brought that ointment and anointed him. In verses 45 to 46, after our text, we see uh, three times him asking for prayer from his disciples, Peter, James, and John. But he only finds that their spirit is willing and their bodies are weak. And then Jesus, finally waking them again, says, See, the hour is at hand. And Judas betrays him with a kiss. In verse 56, after Jesus is arrested, Matthew wants us to know, quote, All his disciples left him and fled. Matthew further emphasizes Christ's forsakenness in chapter 27, verse 38, by excluding the repentance of the thief on the cross. The other synoptics talk about it, right? You know one of them said, yeah, he hasn't done anything wrong, and Jesus tells him, this day you will be with me in paradise, but not in Matthew. In Matthew, he mentions the two thieves, but he mentions them as... Uh, uh, not being, not caring about this man. It doesn't, doesn't talk about the repentance of the thief. And in verse 39, it says, All passers-by derided him. And finally, in verse 46, Matthew includes the cry from Psalm 22, we just sang, and these he includes as Jesus' very last words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why all this forsakenness surrounding the initiation of the Lord's Supper through his death? Well, in part, I believe it's so we can recognize that Christ alone can pay for the debt. He alone has met all the requirements of the law. He alone lays down his life for his friends. And also, his suffering and sacrifice is so that you might believe that Christ will never betray or forsake you. By faith, you are joined to the betrayed master of the feast and to one another. You may be betrayed by friends, even those who are brothers and sisters in this life, but Christ has not forsaken you. You may feel forsaken by God in this life, but you never are. He tells us, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells us this with his authority. Our faith is built as we look to Christ and feed together in the supper. We're reminded of his great gift to us in his suffering and death. He will never leave us or forsake us, scripture teaches Do you believe this? Second, Matthew focuses on Christ freeing us from slavery in chapter 26. It's evident that Matthew wants us to relate the Old Testament idea of the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper because of when the Lord's Supper is instituted. In verses 17 to 19, Notice Matthew mentions the preparation of the Passover meal three times. 
Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? One. He said, Go, and this sounds very authoritative to me, go into a city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover to at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. Three. Matthew doesn't want us to pass over the Passover. Sorry, that was corny. This Passover meal will be the last. At Christ's death, all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and celebrations will be fulfilled in Christ. The Passover was an annual celebration of Israel's deliverance from suffering as slaves in the land of Egypt. Like the cross in the New Testament, the Passover was the gospel or good news of the Old Covenant that Israel was to celebrate. The feast was comprised of roasted lamb, bitter herbs, wine, and bread. When the lamb was slain, they were to take the blood of the lamb and place it over their doors. This lamb took the place of the firstborn son when the death angel approached. If the blood was there, death would pass over that house. They were instructed to eat it all, no leftovers, eat in haste, and be ready to leave Egypt and slavery behind. Why does Jesus bring in the Passover in such a pronounced way? He wants to emphasize with his disciples and with us what they knew but didn't know fully. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and we are slaves to sin and death. God heard their pleas and sent a deliverer, Moses. Without any pleas from us, Jesus demonstrates that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. He gives us new meaning to it. He shows us the consistent focus of God on redemption throughout the whole of Scripture. The Passover and Exodus meant deliverance for Israel from earthly slavery. But the ultimate meaning of the Passover is the deliverance of his people from sin's mastery and curse of death. The Passover lamb was a sign pointing to Jesus' death. The bread and the wine do the same. All that God did with Israel in the Passover was so you and I would understand it, would get it. And we're instructed in 1 Corinthians 11 to regularly observe the Lord's Supper. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We often say we celebrate the Lord's Supper because feasts are celebratory. But how can death be celebrated? The fact that our debt of death has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord means we can be glad. We can celebrate. If you had a debt, maybe your taxes, and someone paid it all, you'd celebrate. This so far greater. And now we're commanded at the Lord's Supper to meditate on the reality that we are free from slavery to sin and death. 
and we're called to be holy and be blessed with eternal life. Our faith is built as we look to Christ and feed together in the supper. Through the supper, we are reminded of his great gift to us in his suffering and death. We are free from sin's power, and we're free from sin's penalty. Do you believe this? We've looked at the broad now context of our passage and the immediate context around our passage. We've seen that Jesus is the Lord who has all authority in heaven and earth. We've learned that it is he who calls his people to himself from all nations over the world, and his people must render unto him all allegiance through the exercising of their faith. He alone has done this, and he accomplishes our freedom from sin and death through his perfect life and substitutionary death. So now I think we're ready to read our passage. We'll look at the supper itself. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So there are four accounts of Jesus' words of institution. All share three basic elements. Jesus broke bread, he offered wine, and he commanded the disciples to partake. Matthew and Mark are closer in their texts to one another. They both say, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And Luke and 1 Corinthians both read, do this in remembrance of me. And they also say, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Though we don't have Jesus' exact words, we know from Paul in 1 Corinthians that he, quote, received them from others And he, quote, delivered them to the Corinthians. In the original language there, others tell me, he took those words of receive and delivered have the implication of taking great care when he transmitted these accounts so that we would truly understand the Lord's meaning here. In this supper, Jesus is asking us to look to him in faith, to trust in the perfect life he is providing for us before the judgment seat of God. Trust in the substitutionary death he provides. Trust in the transformation that makes our hearts his. When my daughter Mary was five, what was in fifth grade, she was ten, She came to me in tears one morning, explaining that she had tried and tried, but she was sure she'd never be good enough to be a Christian. I took her to the parable of the prodigal son, a story I thought she knew really well. I asked her what the wayward son brought to assuage the father's anger 
and gain his love and acceptance? And she rightly said, nothing. I said, that's right. And he brought nothing but his sins to the father. And he was welcomed by the father with a ring and a cloak and a fatted calf for dinner. But I'll never be good like you and daddy, she said. Then I asked her, what did the older brother bring? He had been obedient all the years of his brother's lost journey, and he held on to his self-righteousness with anger, refusing to come to the party. While it certainly is true that believers grow in godliness, your mom and dad never bring that to the Father to merit his love. We only bring our sin every day. That day, Mary came to the Lord Jesus with nothing but her sins. And she keeps coming to him now, 18 years later. Every day we sing this refrain, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Christ is calling us to experience afresh the fruit of our union with him. When we are weary, doubting, fearful, guilt-ridden, frustrated, proud, anxious. He bids us to come to the wine and the bread. We receive them as a sign of our union with Christ and a means of our communion with him. In this way, he nourishes our souls. One other kind of context helps too, cultural context. So at this scene, traditionally, All the men would have been laying around the table. They recline at table uh, on cushions. They're not seated in chairs. And traditionally, the Passover meal begins with the father standing up and breaking the bread and distributing it and explaining the whole meal to everybody. And while Jesus had likely already done all that, because at this point, they were all just talking to each other, In the mid-meal, once again, Jesus takes the bread. Not in the script. He breaks it and then explains something totally new. This is my body. This is my blood, lifting up the bread and the wine. He speaks as he often did in metaphor. He means this represents my body and declares the work I am doing in my body as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The wine points to the blood Jesus will pour out on the cross. These disciples, and we here, we're used to Jesus speaking metaphor. It wouldn't have been weird to them. Other traditions have other ideas, but this is clearly a metaphor. Jesus does it all the time. When he's present, he'll say, I am the door. They know he's not a door. Okay? When he is present, they'll say, he'll say, I am the vine. And they know he's not a vine. Okay? He'll say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you know you're not on the salt, you're not the salt shaker over there. He means something else. All is metaphor except for Christ being our brother. 
God being our Father, and we being sisters and brothers united to Christ, the family of God is not just a type or a picture. It is real. Christ, our elder brother and Lord, wants us to faithfully remember that he offers his life as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Only he can do this, and there is nothing worthy in us that requires it of him. He does this to please the Father who sent him. Jesus is pictured as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29. And in our next time together, we will look at his unconditional promise to drink anew this fruit of the vine with us in his Father's kingdom. If, as Hebrews says, Jesus, quote, appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, then the salvation of believers is secured by the complete work of Christ. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28 says this is true, both because his accomplishment cannot be reversed and because the Spirit of Christ continues to work in his people today. Do you believe this? Calvin makes this connection from the cross to the resurrection in this way. Quote, Thus we see how Christ leads his disciples by the hand to the cross in the supper and then raises them to the hope of resurrection with his promise. And as it was necessary that they should be directed to the cross of Christ, it is by that ladder that they ascend to heaven. So now, since Christ has died and been received into heaven, we ought to be led from the contemplation of the cross to heaven. Salvation is accomplished once for all by Christ and received by being united to him by faith produced by the Spirit. The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself to Christ It finds its whole interest and object in Christ. For the Christian, looking to Jesus is the absorbing preoccupation of their faith. Amen? Amen. I'll pray and I'll pray for our lunch. Dear great Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this wonderful institution of a supper that when it accompanies your word and your Holy Spirit uses it, we see afresh and anew that we are desperately wicked, that we couldn't even know or begin to know how, that we are in desperate need of a Savior, and that he has come to do this great work, Lord, so that we might be united to him and be one body with him. And we ask, Father, that you would help us during especially this time of contemplation and reflection to see anew what a wonderful and absorbing preoccupation it is 
to look to Christ and not ourselves. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the remainder of our day and our meal particularly, the hands of those prepared it and who have done so much to make this time together possible. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.